Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. I finally got in the room. We weren't allowed to touch him because of because of, it wasn't COVID time yet, but they were just very, nothing could be on him. He had, nobody could touch him. He had to be very isolated just because, you know, if he was going to have a chance to make it, he just couldn't pick up anything. And I remember seeing him and in front of everybody, I gave him a kiss on the forehead and I said goodbye to him because I knew it was the last time I was going to see him. And I, I remember my dad saying, Justin, you can't do that. And I said, dad, I'm saying goodbye. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Before we get into it, I would like to ask all of our listeners for a favor. Please, 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 if you have not subscribed to this podcast, please go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review. So please, please, if you want to support us, we very, very much appreciate it. Subscribe, rate and review. All right, let's get into it. Today is a special episode with my friend, Justin. Justin White had been using meth for 12 years when tragedy found his family. His son had been playing outside and drowned in an empty pool at the age of 18 months. The loss was more than he could withstand. His meth use accelerated and he introduced heroin into his daily life. He spent days and weeks motionless inside his house, unable to do anything other than medicate the waves of pain. He eventually decided he needed to get clean, but it took six attempts. Yes, you heard that right. Six attempts to get into rehab. Each time he wasn't admitted, the stakes mounted and eventually he ended up using fentanyl before finally getting clean. In treatment, the difficult work continued with EMDR, working through the most painful moments of his life. But something about the practice began to work and life felt like it could continue. He still meets with a therapist who he credits with saving his life. In nine days, he will celebrate a year of sobriety as he honors his son's life and hopes to someday have another child and give back to those that have given so much to him by becoming a drug and alcohol counselor. This story is incredibly personal to me. I was one of the first responders to the scene when Justin's son Raiden drowned in 18 inches of water. And that is because his parents are my neighbors. It was a moment that has bound us together for life. And at the time, I wasn't sure if Justin would ever be able to get sober. It just goes to show you that when someone wants to get sober and they do what it takes, it can happen for anyone. I don't want to give too much of the story away, only that this was a really intense experience. And we did it on what would have been Raiden's sixth birthday in honor of Raiden. I give you Justin's story. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Well, Justin, thank you for being here. This is, I like, I'm kind of emotional already. This is an interview that I never imagined doing. And I've talked a lot about what we went through together on this podcast over the last four seasons, because it was a big event in my life. It pales in comparison to what it was in your life. So I'm just really excited that you got sober and that you're here. It's a fucking miracle that you are sober. How long are you sober? I just got nine months about two weeks ago. So I'm, uh, it feels really good though. It's a definite life changer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's dive a little bit into your background before we talk about the using and, and what led you to recovery. Where did you grow up and what was it like growing up in the house you grew up in? Um, I grew up in Laguna Hills, California. My parents were very present in my life. They were very good parents. They weren't alcoholics. They were not addicts. They raised eight kids out of the same house. We never had to move. They were just absolutely loving parents. They, I don't know. It was just whatever your parents do, I guess you do the opposite. And, uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> and that's kind of what I did. And a lot of my siblings actually did that as well. I think six out of eight of us had gone to rehab and we've all had our struggles, but we've all came out of it also. I was definitely the last one out of my family to come out of it. It was, uh, I did have some trauma in my life and that kind of motivated me a little bit. But growing up, you know, I played sports my whole life. I played baseball very competitively. I was at Junior Olympics and my best friend actually got drafted by the Kansas City Royals and I played varsity baseball all through high school. And after high school, you know, I just fell into it. Let me ask you. So you mentioned trauma and I know that you, one of your parents is not your biological parents. What was the trauma? And do you think that not having the biological parent had an effect on you? I remember when I was, I remember a couple of times when my mom never hid that from me. The father I have now, he raised me from when I was a year and a half. My mom met him. He, I consider him my father. Yeah. He put on the work. He never treated me any different than any other kids. I never questioned him about loving me. I still remember the day when I was about, I don't know, three or four, asking if I can call him dad. And he said, you can call me whatever you want. <laughs> but I do remember a couple of times, you know, just crying to my mom saying, you know, why doesn't my dad want me? Like, why doesn't, or, you know, my biological dad, why doesn't he want to be around me? Does he, does he not want me? Does he not care for me? Does, what is it? And I didn't meet him until I was 19 years old. By meeting him, I, I fell into to meth. So it was a kind of interesting story. So you had never had a drink or, or a drug before you met your biological father? No, I had, you know, alcohol. My drug of choice was methamphetamine. I, you know, I drank in high school just very seldomly. I started smoking pot after high school. When I, I consider being having meth my addiction because I wasn't addicted to alcohol. I wasn't addicted to pot. I could put it down. But meth got a hook on me and I couldn't put that down. When I started using meth, it was when I met my father. He was a roofing contractor and I went to work for him. And the guys on the roof, I asked them one day, I said, how do you guys keep going? How do you guys keep working so hard all day long? And they said, well, you want to be like Superman. And I was like, well, who doesn't want to be like Superman? So yeah, I want to be like Superman. <laughs> and they gave me methamphetamine and uh, I thought it was cocaine for about two weeks. So, you know, I was crushing it up. I didn't know. I didn't never seen cocaine, never seen meth. So I didn't know what it looked like. It was crystal. I crushed it up and I snorted it and it made me uh, work hard. And that's when I, that's when I started using meth was uh, after I met him which is kind of crazy. So kind of, a, this is a two-part question. One, what was it like meeting your dad at 19 after feeling like he had abandoned you? And then the other piece, why was it so easy to try this drug when you hadn't really done a lot of drugs before? Why wasn't there more fear? So whichever order you want to go in. So meeting my dad when I was 19, I knew I had a sister out there. And my biological dad, he also left her at a very young age. My sister got a hold of me through Facebook. And so I went over and met her. And then I found out I had a, another two sisters and another little brother. So I went and met them before I met my dad. And I met, you know, I actually met the whole entire family before I met him. And I went, went into his house. I talked to his wife before I met him. I said, and she's like, do you want to meet him? I said, no, it's not ready yet. And uh, so when I finally went over there one day, all my brothers and sisters were there. The wife is there. The grandma was there. So I said, okay, I guess I'm ready. She called him from work and he left work and he came back. He walked in the door and he started crying instantly and he hugged me. I said, can we take a walk? So he lives right on the cliffs in San Pedro. It is beautiful out there. And so he walked to the cliffs and we talked. The very first question, you know, we talked a little bit, how you doing on the way there. But when we got into the conversation of what happened, why didn't you look for me? Or what's your excuse? Why didn't you come to find me? Why did I have to find you? I didn't understand why I had to find him. He gave me the best answer that anybody could have gave me. And he said, I don't have an excuse. I said, well, <laughs> yeah. I, guess I guess that's the best answer you could have gave me because I uh, don't have a response to that really. And then he asked me, you know, what do I call you? But, and I said, well, I have a dad, so you can call me Justin. I'm not, I'm not your son. You lost that privilege. Really? I have a dad. I can't take that away from him. He's raised me my whole life and just call me Justin. So that was in 2009 and it's still been that way ever since except for my birthday this year, you know, two weeks ago, it was the very first time that I called him dad. Yeah. So what you know, made you want to do that? 
because like you know we've been around each other so much and when we go out somewhere he knows a lot of people in san pedro he's been there for his whole life so when we go out he runs into a lot of people and he says this is my son this is easier i, I understand right. that i don't know i just been over there and now i'm, I'm i just got engaged so it's um yeah so i invited my brothers and sisters to be in the wedding and i don't know it, it just feels like it's time the way i see it is i'm not disrespecting my father that raised me they've actually talked and communicated now when my son passed away my dad understands that i've, I've explained to him because you know it was kind of hard for him too to see me going to another guy that abandoned me but in my head i wanted to know where i came from really i, I really wanted to know where i came from so i spent a lot of time over there and but i made sure my dad knew that he's my father he's the one that raised me this is I'm, I, if i call him dad it's not disrespecting him i can have two dads in this world i just never felt like i could call him dad really until i got sober honestly when i was in my addiction there's no i was stubborn and i just there's no way i was gonna call him dad but now that i'm sober it's i don't know i guess just the, the emotional the, the feelings that i get from it you know i, I do love him i forgave him uh, I don't hold resentment towards them. We are so much alike. It's ridiculous from not being together for 19 years. The things that we do, like the whole family, they can't believe it. They're like, holy cow. Like we're, we're the most alike out of any of his kids. And I don't know. I think the sobriety definitely made me open to the idea of calling him dad because it's you know he's my family and i've always known he's my part of my family but just for respect for him and respect for my for myself really i guess to call him dad is uh i don't know i just felt like it was the right timing and i and i, and I went for it to answer the other question about what made me want to try meth or like why was it so easy like a lot of kids if you'd only smoked pot or drank and someone hands you a bag of powder i mean what would make you just want to jump into that it was definitely the energy that I was having and then not knowing what happens from it. I was so uneducated on drugs at the time. If I would have known what I know now, I would never would have picked it up. I was very, very uneducated on addiction. I had no idea what addiction. I, I heard addiction, but I didn't understand addiction. And it wasn't, it was my energy because they were just working hard. They worked from seven to three 30 and we just worked and worked. It was roofing. So I was, it was very labor intensive. And I, when I asked someone, I said, how the hell do you guys keep going all day long? I mean, I was physically fit. I was the best shape of my life. I was <laughs> training and I couldn't keep up. I went and I crushed it up on a little CD case. I snorted it and it was the worst burn I've ever felt in my life up my nose. I went out there and I worked my ass off. And I, I, I specifically remember the very first time I did it because I called, I have 11 uh, brothers and sisters from both sides of the family. I called every single brother and sister and had a conversation with them. <laughs> <laughs> And I told them how happy I was and yeah. I'm doing great. And yeah. um, I love you, man. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just felt it. I, I'm specifically I haven't talked to you in a while. We, you know, we have 11 of us. We don't all get along. And I had a conversation the whole way home. So to answer your question, I don't know why it was easy for me. I wasn't thinking. I just wanted to work harder. You know, when I first started doing meth, I didn't have to use it right when I woke up. You know, I was able to just do it at work and then I would come home and not use it. And then I would go to work and that went on for about, I don't know, six months. And then uh, it just, uh, that wasn't when I started my addiction though. That was when I first did it. When did you realize, oh my God, I'm addicted to this? After that, you know, actually one of my friends used to sell drugs and I asked him for some and he said, you know, I will, I'll get it. I told him it wasn't for me. I told him, just get it for me. I'm going to get to my buddy. And then when he gave it to me, I acted like, ew, this is gross. And I went, ran, ran. I remember running and get grabbing a pipe and smoking it. And that's not, I don't think that's when I realized, but that's when I realized that I was hiding something from people. Then I was bartending after that and I started selling weed as well. And my dealer, I owed him a couple grand and my dealer came by my bar and took me out of the bar and was like, and kind of gave me a reality check. Not, we didn't get in a physical altercation, but he, he kind of talked to me like, you're a good looking boy. You're doing this shit. You're just ruining your life. What are you doing? And after that, I actually got sober for probably like two weeks. Then I went back into it. I lost my job bartending and I got really depressed. And it was after that, it was on, it was on. Like it was, uh, I definitely had a problem at that point. And then it, it, that lasted until nine months ago. Yeah. How long was that? How many years? So I've been doing it total for since 2009 till 21. 
So like 11 years, maybe 12, a little bit, almost 12 years. Consistently, I've probably been doing it for about 10. Tell me about the birth of your son, Raiden. So it was an interesting time. I was very heavy in addiction. Very, very heavy. Me and my girlfriend both were. We, we were homeless for a good part of two years. And I mean, on the streets, homeless. I mean, the, where I think we conceived him was at, at a park, like up where the, the slides are, like mm-hmm. on a little platform. I'm pretty sure that's where he was conceived. So you guys, to be clear, you lived in like a tent on the street. We lived anywhere we could really. Actually, where I chose to live was... So there's these... On top of like CVS or Ralph's or something, there's this little house looking thing. So if you climb up there... (laughs) Not to give this away to everybody, but if you climb up there, those little houses are actually completely hollow inside with a door. So I went up there... And the first time I went up there, I opened the door and it was just a bunch of plywood. And it was a little, it was a little house. It was like a size of a room, but a little house. And it, when you drive by CVS, you'll notice them on top. You're like, oh, wow, he stayed up there. That's where I stayed. Yeah, we were definitely homeless, you know, sleeping under whatever we could. Yeah, we were definitely, we were homeless, homeless. Where we, you know, we didn't shower for a while. We were showering in community pools, showers. We were, I was running out of stores with food to, to eat. Just a very bad time for us. When she got pregnant, she went to a homeless pregnancy woman's program. She got sober and, you know, there's like three phases or whatever. And she did phase one and two. And then when Radian was born, she thought that he wasn't mine. He was born with a cleft foot. My ex had cheated on me with, I don't know how many people she cheated on me with, but she cheated on me. And he's born with cleft foot, which means like the, you know, the ankles are turned in. So one of the, one of the guys that she slept with had cleft foot when he was a child and it happens in one in every 200,000 babies. So she thought it was his. So she had him uh, DNA tested and it came back completely zero. I was with her until like the last month of pregnancy where she was uh, kind of not knowing what to do. She was kind of losing her mind and she didn't know who the baby was and everything. So I didn't see Raiden born and I didn't meet him for until he was about a month old. I actually ran into her. I was skating down the street. She drove by me down the street and she like almost like slammed on her brakes and pulled over and we talked and then we went to lunch right then and there. The next day we met up again and I told her, you know, I don't know if I'm the father but I want to be in his life. I don't want to get a DNA test and I'm just going to be this father in his life. I don't want to know if it's his, if he's mine or not. I don't want to do any of the tests, but I will definitely take him like my, my father did to me. I was kind of following his role, but he was so much like me. He had all the characteristics and everything. So yeah, that's, that's how he came into my life. As Raiden got older, he would come and stay with you at your parents' house, right? And and d- did you guys pass off custody back and forth? She was my friend. She was a shit show, really. It was uh, she used him him as a pawn. The way that's the way I, I describe it. She was so bad in addiction. It was just it was an uphill battle all the time. Like I remember one time I went to work. I started work. You know, I told you I started working and do construction for a construction company. So I worked every single day. She wasn't working. She was just taking care of Raiden, living at my house. But it was like living at my house, and then she'd leave the baby, and then she would take off for a couple of days, and then she would come back, and then she would get mad at me for something thinking I was cheating on her so she would take off for a couple of days and then she would say she's moving out so she would take Raiden it was just it was all over the place it was not steady Uh, Raiden was in the car seat way too much Uh, he hated going in the car seats because of it I remember one time I was at work at like 7.30 in the morning and she she calls me and says you worked yesterday it's my turn to do what I want to do so I left Raiden on your doorstep I'm already at work in Newport Beach and it was uh, about you know 20 minutes away I call my brother at like 7.30 8.30 in the morning and I'm like Hey, you need to go check the front door to make sure that Ray's not there. And he went and sure enough, he was sitting in his car seat right in front of my door with nobody around. Yeah. So it was, it was, she was living with me, not living with me. She filed child support. I was giving her money on top of child support and she was living with me at the same time. It was a mess. It really was a mess. And it was just, it was very difficult to deal with. Very difficult. I remember one time when we weren't living there, we were staying in a hotel one night and I had no gas and I had a hundred dollar deposit because in addiction, you only you live day by day. So you make your money that day. And so I had a hundred dollar deposit on the hotel room. And in the morning she went, grabbed a hundred dollar deposit, took the diaper bag and took off, left me and Raiden with no gas in Anaheim and no money and no diaper bag. And I remember just looking at him and I go, 
I don't know what we're going to do, buddy, but we're going to do something. We're going to figure it out. And I did. I, I literally, in my addiction, I prayed to God. I said, God, please just get me home. So I just, I just went for it in, in the van and I made it home. Thank God. I don't know how I made it home. It was on, it was on the red in Anaheim, which is like 35 minutes away. And I did. I made it home. So it was a, it was an uphill battle. There's so many stories and it's just the way I see is death now. I think God took him out of his life because he wasn't going to live a good life with us being his parents. He just wasn't, it just wasn't in the books. You know, I did everything I could, but the way he, the way she treated him, it wasn't fair to him to be in this world. I'm not saying I was a perfect father because I was, I was an addiction. There's no way I could be a perfect father, but I, I did try my hardest. So I think God saved him from just turmoil and, and heart. He has such a good soul and it wasn't, he wasn't meant for the life that we were leaving, leading him into. Jesus wasn't. So let's talk about it. Let's let's go there. I live next door to your parents, and I moved in there before my kids were born. I lived there when you were in some semblance of living there with Raiden. We had talked to each other, you know, here and there, said hi because our kids uh, were, I think, six months apart. On Valentine's Day of 2018, our paths crossed. Do you want to start in on how that day started for you? Yeah. So Raiden was with me in the morning. My mom had called Caitlin to come and pick him up because it was Valentine's Day, like you said, and my parents were going out. My brother was going out. There's nobody to watch him. I was going to be with him. I wanted to go to dinner with Caitlin. She had been gone for a couple of days or you know, almost a week, maybe. So she came by to pick him up and I went outside with her and we were actually sitting right in front of your house. You know, so your house kind of like curves around. You can't really see it from my house with those trees. So we were over there. My mom went out to the car to grab something uh, while me and Caitlin grabbed the baby. She put clothes on him, changed him. And then she got in this argument with me to leave. And she told me that I was going to go hang out with four hookers. And she was just, she was just trying to get me into a fight where she could take off. So she dropped Raiden off. I was sitting on the curb. She dropped him off right next to me. You know, so I was holding him and she went to her car. I thought she was grabbing a cigarette or something. And she hopped in her car and took off. While she hopped in her car and took off, my mom came out to grab something from the car. She saw the car taking off. So she thought that we were all in the car and we all took off. So my mom had gone back inside, went upstairs into the inner room to get ready for Valentine's Day to go on their date. I walked in the house with Raiden. I, and usually we have, a, we have a doggy door that's in the backyard. And we every time he's there, we lock it. So my mom had unlocked it because she saw us drive away. She thought he was gone. So I put him down. I heard pots and pans clanging in the kitchen. And I thought my mom was just in there doing dishes. So I ran upstairs to call her to try to get her back to come back. And it happened to be my dog bowls that are metal clinging on the ground because my dad just fed them. So that's what I heard the pots and pans clinging on the ground. My dogs had gone outside and I believe that my son followed him out the doggy door. And then I haven't really said this to much people, but I did hear a splash. And I thought it was your kids in the pool. I thought you guys were in the pool. That was my very first thought, I remember. To just break in here real quick, your pool was empty. My pool was empty. Your pool was empty and it had been raining. So 18 18 inches of rainwater. 18 inches of rainwater. So it's reasonable that when you heard a splash, I mean, you can, I can see into your yard, you can see into mine. Our pool is right there. So there's no good reason why you would have thought it was a splash in your backyard. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I was in the room that was closest to your pool as well. So I I heard a splash and you guys were, I remember that summer, you guys were definitely in the pool quite a bit. So I, I figured that you guys were just out there swimming. I walked downstairs. I didn't find Raiden. So I went to my parents' room. I said, Hey, do you guys have Raiden? And my mom was like, What? And I said, Do you have Raiden? And she's like, No, I don't have Raiden. I'm like, What do you mean you don't have Raiden? And I started freaking out. And my dad says, Go check the backyard. I ran in the backyard and he was, he did fall into the pool and landed. And that was a splash that I heard. And I jumped down and I picked him up. And that's probably when you came out because you heard me scream. I've never screamed like that in my life. Uh, The first time in my own, the only time I've ever screamed like that. And I, it was, uh, I I guess to call it like flight or fight. And when I picked him up, there was green water coming out of his mouth. And I knew he was dead at that time. And I handed him to my mom and I flew, I I ran. So I don't know what happened at the house after that. You probably saw a lot more than I did. Yeah. So 
it was like 5 p.m. when I came out and you guys were in a fight and I was alone. My husband was working in in uh, LA at the time. And so he wasn't home at night or he was in traffic. And I saw you and Caitlin get in a fight in front of the house. And I thought, oh, maybe I should take Raiden to the park with us. I was like, I'll just put him in the wagon. And you know, if they're struggling or whatever, I know what addiction looks like. And I knew that... I could tell that you guys were in it. I thought, oh, uh, you know, I should take her in. I'm like, no, they're fighting. Like, they don't want to, you know, they don't want like the goody two shoes next door neighbor to be like, can I help you? So it's like, I'll just buy my own business. And we went to the park and then came back. And the twins are on this like crazy, like down to the minute schedule because that was the only way to manage having two infants at once. So that's why I remember exactly what time it was because it was, I came back, I put them in the, the playpen and I heard a scream that. That is only the scream of someone who found a child that's in mortal danger. That's it. There's no other scream. And I, no one was home and I don't know what happened, but I left, I ran out my front door. I left my kids in my house by themselves in that playpen and I ran. And as I was running to your house, into your house, you were running out and you were like, I killed my son. I just followed the screams because Caitlin was... By that time, Caitlin was on the ground screaming and your mom and someone else, maybe your brother, were there and Raiden was on his back soaking wet in the backyard, not breathing. And I remember thinking like, why is he wet? Like there's no water anywhere. There's no, like I couldn't, if you just looked at the pool, you couldn't see down in the deepest part that there was water and no one knew how to do CPR or no one was doing CPR. And so I did CPR on him until the paramedics came, which was... A really difficult, intense experience. You know, he was 18 months old. Mine were 13 months old. It was as intense as anything I have ever experienced in my life. Through my head, for me, I was like, am I doing this wrong? Oh my God, am I breaking his ribs? Oh my God, you know, just like all the things, right? It was, it was just, I'm getting chills. And then when the paramedics came and took him, I sat with Caitlin and told her that, you know, he wasn't dead, which he wasn't. And that, you know, it was like, we didn't know, we like, don't assume, like, don't, you know, whatever. And I sat with her for a little bit. And then I came out and sat with you and talked to you until the cops came and and I shared with you that I was sober and that you weren't a bad person. And actually, I think I came out. That's not true. I came out and I flipped out and I was screaming and like friends came over and took care of the kids. And then I think it was the next day or later that day where I went and sat next to you and talked to you. I think it was the next day because next after, day. Yeah. so you were in the backyard. After I handed my mom, I just threw shoes on and I threw a shirt on. And by the time the cops got there, I took off because I, in my head, when I picked him up, he was dead. There was no life in him. And I heard that he, you know, he had died. He had lost his life for about, I don't know how many minutes, but he did lose his life and they brought him back to life. I took off. I didn't know what to do. I did have meth in a pipe on me. And I remember throwing the meth against the wall just out of anger. And I threw the pipe against the wall out of anger. And I went to Big Lots with the money I had to go to dinner. Like again, I was in addiction, so I didn't have much money. I only had like 20 bucks to take us to dinner. So I went and bought a blanket and I went behind Big Lots. And if you remember, there used to, there used to be U-Hauls back there. I went and opened up a U-Haul and I slept in the U-Haul uh, until the next day. I didn't really sleep. I just laid there with the blanket. It was definitely in the morning, probably like one, two or three. And the cops were there for a long time. They were I, looking I know, for you. Yeah. Yeah, I got told that too by a bunch of people. There was, I guess, there was two helicopter cops with thermals on oh, looking wow. for me. So when I jumped in the pool, I had my socks and my pants got wet. And I didn't change my socks and my pants. So when I went into the U-Haul, I remember I was freezing cold that whole entire night. I came out once and I looked around the corner and they were still there in the morning. So I waited till the daytime the very next day. And, you know, I had thought that my son died. I didn't think that he was alive. And I went back to my house. I ran into my room. I snuck in because my parents were devastated. So they didn't know I was home. I guess they must have heard me or something. I snuck in. I felt like I was in my room for about 20 minutes. And my mom came in, ran in and gave me a hug. She thought that, you know, I might have ended my life. And that was the time, first time that I ever thought that about ending my life personally. It wasn't really a, a acting thought. It was more like just a fleeting thought. But it's the first time and only time that I thought, you know, I should kill myself. So my mom came in and said, you know, Raiden's not, he hasn't died yet. He's in the ICU. He's very, he's very hurt. 
at the time I had a warrant for a petty theft charge, which is a little misdemeanor that I got my addiction. And my mom said, you know, or actually my dad said, the police want to come talk to you. They said that they're not going to arrest you. They just want to get your side of the story for um, the death of Raiden. They just want your side of the story to make sure everything checks out. They're not going to arrest you. So the police came over. We all sat down in the living room. They showed up. I don't know if you remember this or not, but the next day they showed, they showed up. Plain Absolute plain clothes. They had jeans. The two homicide detectives were in suits. We all sat down in my living room. We, we spoke. They asked me what happened. I told them at the end of the conversation. Um, I said, you know, how did it go? They said it went really well. I said, okay, am I being arrested? And they said, yes, you're being arrested, but not for your son. You're being arrested for your warrant. And that's when my mom went nuts. She's like, how could you do this? You know, you told us that you were going to just come and talk to him. You were going to arrest him. And he said, well, you know, in our job, if we find someone that has a warrant, we have to, by law, we have to take him in if they have a warrant. We can't, but he's not getting arrested for his son. But, and she's like, you know, he just lost his son. How are you going to throw him in jail right now? He said, uh, you know, we have to take him in. It's something that we can do. I only, it was only a thousand dollar bond. So my mom posted the bail right away. I was only, I was in and out for about like five hours. You know, CPS came up to me while I was in the back of the cop car. They asked me a series of questions about using and they decided that they're going to take temporary custody over Raiden at the time he was in the hospital. I forgot out of jail that next day. That's when I went home and I'm pretty sure that me and you talked on the front porch. I remember opening up to you. I, I told you the truth about pretty much everything. You know, I told you that I was, yeah, I'm using. And I remember you giving me, you gave me hope that I didn't have to be that way anymore. And, you know, in my addiction, I ignored it. <laughs> Understandable. Yeah. So did you go and see Raiden in the hospital? Yeah. So I went, I, after I talked to you the next day, I went to San Pedro and Caitlin had, I was, so remember I told you I wasn't, I didn't know if he was my father, I was the father or not. I didn't care. I was just going to be his dad. Well, I had not been on the birth certificate. And when Caitlin got to the hospital, she told the hospital that only immediate family only. So me not being on the birth certificate meant that I can't go see him in the hospital. So I had to go to, I went to San Pedro and my stepmom, she's like, bullshit. Like you're going to go see your child now. And you know, you raised him. He's your child just as hers. So I went to the hospital. They didn't allow me in because I was on the birth certificate. So I had to go to go see the family court lawyer. I had to get paperwork from him stating that I was the father, that I had been paying child support. And I got paperwork from him. I went back to the hospital. They said, we told you you can't be here. It's immediate family only. And I had to prove to them that I was the father. I remember Caitlin coming out. First time we've seen each other since it was probably two or three days after he's been in the hospital. And she said, I can't believe you're doing this to me. Don't make me lose any more time with my son. You know, you piece of shit. So I walked in there and I, I saw him. There was there was a lot of hope while he was in the hospital. There was a lot of hope. He had good days. He had bad days. It was only nine days, but there was a lot of hope uh, in the first couple of days. And then I went and saw him probably on the seventh day again. This time, Caitlin finally agreed. Since I got in, she finally agreed to like leave the room because the doctors wouldn't even let us be in the same room because she didn't know how she was going to act. So I finally got in the room. We weren't allowed to touch him because of because it wasn't COVID time yet, but they were just very nothing could be on him. He had nobody could touch him. He had to be very isolated just because, you know, if he was going to have a chance to make it, you just couldn't pick up anything. And I remember seeing him and in front of everybody, I gave him a kiss on the forehead and I said goodbye to him because I knew it was the last time I was going to see him. And I, I remember my dad saying, Justin, you can't do that. And I said, Dad, I'm saying goodbye. So that was the last time I, I was ever, ever able to see him. It was very sad. Very, very sad. I can't remember what day it was, but somehow I got myself into the hospital to see him, maybe towards the end, which is why, but Caitlin let me in and I sat with him and and the doctor told me that there was no chance he was going to make it. And I think he told me that because I wasn't family. It was incredibly painful and difficult and obviously nothing compared to what you guys were were going through and um it was just it left a mark you know it left a mark and and like you and I don't think that you knew this until recently that I had done EMDR on the situation because I was terrified of you know my kids going near water every time they would make noise I was afraid that you were there and gonna like I was triggered by everything and the EMDR was fantastic it changed everything I could walk by your house I could talk to you I was totally fine and I know that you had a similar experience 
where EMDR really, really helped you? Yeah. When he passed away, that me and Caitlin broke up. The day he passed away, I lost I lost him and her the same day. So I moved to San Pedro. Uh, eight months later, I met my fiance that I have now. We were both in addiction. We were both living on the streets. More on the streets as in we were hoteling. We were homeless. We were hoteling it now at this time. My hustle is a little bit better than it was. <laughs> um, so, so we were living good. in hotels. One day we just, shit just wasn't going right. We didn't make it into the hotel room. We moved down to Temecula. She had a bunch of criminal cases. She went to court and she got sentenced to, she got sentenced to treatment for three months inpatient, three months of outpatient. So she went. And when she went, I, this is when I actually found out that I needed help. I was in Temecula by myself. She was already there for about a week. I had, I was very depressed. It was the, my fiance now, she was a really good distraction from Raiden because I never got help for it because I never, I never grieved him correctly. When she went to rehab, I had picked up some dope for me. I remember I was just sitting in my room with no TV on and no computer on. And I sat in this chair. I wasn't, I didn't eat. And this is for four days straight without getting up, but I just went to the bathroom and smoked dope in this chair, looking, staring at the walls for four days straight. And that's when I finally realized I'm like, you know, something's not right. Why am I just sitting here? And I was very depressed. So as she was in a place called Whiteside Manor, where I went, she told me about this therapy that they had there that I needed to get in. So when I tried to get in, I called the CARES line. I told them who I am. I gave them all the information. I made a mistake by telling them that my girlfriend was at Whiteside. <laughs> and they put, they put a conflict of interest and they wouldn't let me go there. So I decided to go around the CARES line and I would put myself in a psych ward. So I went and I put myself in the same psych ward twice. And the first time and the second time, both after sitting there for 24 hours, they said that my insurance hasn't gone through from Orange County to Riverside County yet. After that, I finally, Catherine talked to her caseworker and her caseworker had deleted the conflict of interest through Whiteside. So I went back through the CARES line. They allowed me to go to Whiteside. I went to Whiteside. And the very first time I went to Whiteside, I remember going there and I had a piece. I was holding my pee to drug test. I had a piece so bad before I got there. I made my buddy pull off on the side of the freeway. On the freeway, I ran down the hill and I, and I went pee. And when I got there, I couldn't pee. So I wasn't allowed to go to, to, to rehab. <laughs> so the, the next time I went, I was finally able to pee and tested positive for fentanyl. They said that I had to, uh, what's the word, detox of fentanyl before I came. Were you using fentanyl? I had I had done it, but I wasn't using it. I mean, I had done it a couple of days prior and I told them, you know, I don't use fentanyl. I don't know why it's in my system. They said, well, you need to detox of fentanyl. Do you think that it was in the meth? Yeah, definitely in the meth, probably. That's when I actually I stopped using it for a couple of days because I wanted to get in rehab. It was like my fourth or fifth trial already. So I call back the next Monday and I say, hey, I need, I want to come back in and re retest. They said, well, you tested positive for fentanyl, so you need to go to detox. So I'm like, oh man, this is going to be, this is, this is like a month span. I'm trying to get into rehab. I call the CARES line. I say, hey, I need a detox. And the lady on the CARES line said, I don't know why there's fentanyl in my system. I don't use it. And they want me to detox off fentanyl. And she said, well, technically there's a little loophole. You, you can go to the emergency room and detox at an emergency room and get in right away. I said, great. So I went to Saddleback Hospital and they just monitored me for six hours and he cleared me. I called back the very next day and I said, okay, I went to detox. <laughs> and they're like, Justin, we just talked to you yesterday. And I yeah. said, I know, but I have a doctor's note saying I detox on fentanyl. And they're like, okay, well, if you come in, you don't test positive for fentanyl, you can come in. So my mom took me for the sixth time trying to get into rehab with all my bags packed, my pillow and everything. My mom finally took me. I went in and I tested. I went back to my mom's car. I sat in the car. I shut the door and I, and I was just kind of quiet. She goes, well, what happened? And I remember I started, I started crying and I told her, well, I finally made it in. She hugged me and then I went on my way. And when I got there, they consider my case one of the most severe cases, one of the most severe cases they've ever had. But at the time, I was the most severe case that they had. I had the most therapy sessions per week. So I was seeing her, beginning of seeing her three times a week. Everyone else saw her once a week. It was very, very intensive therapy. It was, the, besides losing him, it was the next hardest thing in my life. But the most, the most proud I've ever been of myself to face it head on. 
like, like that because you know as you know the emdr it, it brings you back to the scene of the tragedy tra- tragic moment she's she, this is what she did to me she said if you were watching your son's death on a television and you had a posit in one scene where would it be and i told her it was probably when i jumped down i grabbed him out of the pool and i saw green ma- green water coming out of his mouth and she said okay i want you to pause it right there and just think about that so i started crying and crying and you know they, they tell you tell them what you're feeling and what kind of where it hurts on your body because all, all your emotions are connected to your body in, in some way in tragic tragic accidents or whatever and so i told her you know my throat's closing up my heart hurts i feel like it was my fault it was uh feel remorse regret i uh, should have been there it should have been different everything like that and i, I left that day very upset we, she made me make this box that i designed in therapy and then throw all my emotions that i feel over my son into that box and keep it locked in there until i see her and we can open up the box and bring it all out i was having a great day before i went to therapy and after that <laughs> therapy <laughs> after that therapy it was probably the one of the hardest days being sober definitely the hardest yeah. day being sober yeah. for sure you know the next time i went in there she's like so how are you doing and i said well honestly uh i'm doing good today but last time i was in here i was doing really good in the morning and i left here and i was i was doing very very shitty uh, I didn't like the way I was feeling. I tried putting it in the box, it didn't work, and it just was it was very difficult for me. She said, We're gonna dive back into it. I said, Okay. And she said, Okay, so I want you to go back to that scene where you saw your son when you, you picked him out of the pool and there was green water coming out of his mouth. I said, Okay. And this time it was it was magical. She just she you know, I had these two paddles in my hands that vibrate simultaneously. And I sat there for a minute and I was and I was looking at the ground, just thinking about that situation. And I, I told her, I said, I don't know if this is right or not. But I feel love and I feel I feel like Radiance here telling me that he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't try to do it. He didn't if he knew what he was doing, he wouldn't have done it. He's sorry that it happened and it has nothing to do with me. It was, it was an accident. And I said, I feel like he's a, he's over here hugging me right now. And after that day, it was very quick for me. I don't know how long it took for you to get do the EMDR, but for me, it took like two sessions. You know, I did put in the work. I trusted my therapist a hundred percent. I was willing to do the work and it changed my life. It, it made me see my son's death in a different perspective. Now I see it. I, I feel blessed that he was here and I got to experience him for the short amount of time I did. He, I feel like he saved my life coming here. If it wasn't for him, I don't, I wouldn't be sober. I feel like, you know, he's now my guardian angel. He was sent down here to save my life. And when he was able to complete that, he, he, he left. God took him. You know, because I feel like God has a plan for everybody. And and I, that's, that's, that's what I see is that, that was his plan to come down and save my life and then leave. And he did. And now, now I just see his, his life in a different perspective now, which is so helpful. Now I want to go... I'm going to be starting to go to people that recently lost children meetings and help them and especially addicts because, you know, even being an alcoholic is still being, it's the same thing as an addict, you know, it's all addiction and it doesn't matter what drug you choose. You're poisoning your body in any way you can. It's 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 all the same. And so I definitely, if I came out of addiction and after I lost a child, anybody can do it. It's 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 all a matter of mentally being done and being ready to to make a change for your life for the better. When I finally made that change, everything changed. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, beautiful people. If you've been listening to the show for any amount of time you've realized a critical feature in every story is finding a community of supportive people. That community takes many shapes and there is no one size fits all approach. That's where lionrock.life comes in. We host 70 plus meetings a week on a topic that likely matters to you. Those community meetings include things like grief, anger, parenting and recovery, meditation, nutrition, navigating relationships and recovery, and so much more. I think you'll really love it. And I want to give you a chance to try it for free for one month. Go to lionrock.life or download the lionrock.life app, sign up and use promo code courage at checkout for one month free. All the support group meetings you want for one month free. Check it out. Worst case scenario is you meet some great supportive people and you go on your merry way. Okay, back to the show. It's interesting when you talk about perspective because 
that is such a big part of getting sober is seeing a different perspective. And it's truly unimaginable. You're like, what are you going to tell me in this therapy session that's going to make this horrible situation in my life better? Like, what could you possibly say? And for me, interestingly, the the pause moment in, in EMDR for me with that was, was doing CPR on Raiden and the green water coming out of his nose and mouth into my mouth. In my head, you know, I, I can hear it in your, in your story, in your narrative, you were the one who is responsible for the death, right? In my narrative that I had in my head after that experience was that I didn't save him. I didn't save, like, I, I, he, he died anyway. And so in my head, it was like this failure. Like I failed. And so I was responsible. And when we did the EMDR and we play, replayed the situation and she, and she, we paused it. The place where, where I got to was, and with my therapist was, Ashley, you were the only one doing the life-saving thing. Like you, everyone else was too shocked. And so you were helpful. And I did EMDR with the light. You know, I don't know why it's magical. Like kind of like you said, like, I don't, I mean, I, I've read the studies and whatever, but when you experience the change, of your brain and how your brain was reacting before you do this therapy and after you do this therapy. And it's much better on like a, a, a trauma, like a one event. It allows you, you to go through life so much more easily. Yeah. The whole perspective is crazy how that switch can get switched. And it was crazy because she guided me through the process, but I did all the work. I mean, I did all the work without even knowing I was doing the work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the great part. <laughs> yeah, like I didn't even, I didn't even know what was happening, but I fixed. She, like on the second session, she pretty much didn't say anything. She said, "We're going at the same moment. Go ahead and start when you're ready." And then that second moment, I don't know if, if the, you know, being able to really bring up everything because you know your your memory, your brain doesn't it, it closes some parts out, but with that EMDR therapy, it gets every feeling and every emotion that you felt during that exact same time, and it's very it's very very difficult, but it's very successful, especially for, I don't know for me. And it was a couple other people at the rehab went through had some death wasn't a child but it was significant other or a parent or and it happened with them with two or three sessions as well i came very close to my therapist in rehab very close i went and saw her every single day just to say good morning and hi and i told her you know you saved my life you really did you really saved my life and i i can't thank you enough i got emdr therapy my parents still have not and that's something that i've been pushing and pushing on them they still choke up I wasn't able to look at pictures or see videos or anything. Now I look at pictures. I'm able to go to his gravesite. I'm able to talk about him freely without getting emotional. And it's all because of that therapy now. I wasn't able, I wasn't even able to watch movies that had death in it for the longest time, even in rehab, you know, when I still knew him. Everything in my life has changed because of this. And, you know, it's, it's a trip because after working the 12 steps, I work Alcoholics Anonymous. I am a narcotic user, but I work Alcoholics Anonymous strictly because it was a founding father of all the A's, A A N A C A, whatever. I just feel more connected. I, I relate to them. I just changed the word alcohol to meth and it works for me. I think everybody should work the 12 steps because it's a good guide for. For everybody to to live yeah. by a design and for living it's unbelievable <laughs> I'm, I'm remembering inviting you to when you were using inviting you to meetings and the meetings i go to are like 7 a.m and i'd be like texting you like if you want to come i'm thinking to myself he's probably like what the fuck she goes to a 7 a.m meeting um, <laughs> listening to you talk about the program and being sober is just this wild experience for me because I saw you every day, day in, day out. Literally, I knew when you were using, I knew when you were trying to get sober and it happened. I got to see it happen. And it's such a privilege, truly yeah. a privilege to see your recovery and to get to like, I'm, I'm so deeply proud of you. Yeah. It was, um, it was a battle that I was willing to face and, uh, it was so worth it. It was definitely worth it. Everything in my life has changed. Like when I went into rehab, I came out and I remember that recovery is my number one very most important thing in my life. So I took that to heart. And I, the first day I went, got out of rehab, I went to a meeting and then I went the next day too. I stayed what I was doing in rehab. I just switched it over to my normal life. That's maybe something that rehab can start helping people on as a transition. Because I always, I always knew going out of rehab, I always knew that leaving rehab was going to be a very big trigger for anybody. And it was true. 
It was, That's why outpatient yeah. is so important too, because it helps you get that support. Outpatient is is the implementation phase. It's where you have that support while you're implementing everything that you've learned into your actual life. And skipping outpatient is a is a big mistake. I always say going to rehab and not doing outpatient is like buying a Bentley and never getting an oil change. Like you have <laughs> this incredible thing, you own it. But guess what? If you don't ever get a, if you don't ever get an oil change, it doesn't work. It's not going to go anywhere. And so that implementation is is huge that was another thing i did you know they they recommend three months outpatient i did six months everything i did was voluntary i wasn't nudged from a judge or anything i love rehab i, I love the fellowship and the camaraderie that i was able to build with these guys because even though 80 percent of them are still not sober they changed my life and they were there for me at the moment that i needed it was a, it was a perfect group of guys i'm being selfish but it, it worked for me and you know I, I love all those guys they they changed my life they went through the hardest moments of my life with me yeah and i couldn't be more happy that i got put in that group with those guys at that time one of the things about your story that's important to point out it's important to point out for two reasons the first reason is your commitment to getting into rehab and you know six times is egregious that it took that long but it's not just like wanting it it's wanting it no matter what and falling on your face even if you relapse getting back up and trying again and never fucking giving up even when you think you can't take it any longer because that's the way that you get there and that's what you did i mean literally six times you did everything you had to do to get in that's not a normal thing most people don't a have to work that hard or b want it that badly and and that's indicative of your success yeah. It, it was it was worth it though, and that that's probably you're probably right. I never really thought about it like that. Uh, that's probably why I'm so I am successful in recovery. Yeah, and because you fought I, for it, I wanted it. It yeah. wasn't. I didn't get nudged from the judge. I didn't get. I always thought I didn't need rehab. Rehab for quitters, and I didn't want to quit. And I was. And I liked my life without quitting. And until I didn't. And I don't know if it was rock bottom or it's more like a realization. I feel like I didn't really Both. hit rock bottom. Yeah, whatever. Um, I, I had a realization that I wanted something different, and what I was doing wasn't working. And that was the first, when I very first realized that I need help. I can't do it on my own. That's when I fought for it. And and it was worth it. It was definitely worth it. And one thing I wanted to mention was it is Radiant's birthday today. I don't know if you remember that or not, but it is his birthday today. So, yeah. So we will be having a little celebration for him later. We always, you know, we have a bonfire at nighttime. And he, my would, be fiance, he would be six today. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's, it's still hard, but it's, it's getting easier for me. It's, it's not okay, but it's, it's, um, I get to use his death and my addiction now to help people in this world. And that's what I'm very excited for in this world, you know, and I'm not the only person I went through a tragedy, but I'm not the only person that's gone through this. It's like, it's part of life. My insurance guy actually just lost his son to a shooting and I was able to call him <sighs> and talk to him and tell him about EMDR therapy. And, you know, he, he, he's like, thank you so much for calling me because everyone's telling me to do this, do that, but you've actually gone through it and, and talk to me. I want to know what you, I want to know what you did. It felt really good to be able to talk to somebody that just lost a child and them listening to me. Because if I was, if I was high, I wouldn't have even reached out, but now that I'm sober and I've gone through it and I either, I was able to reach out to him and guide him and, you know, guide his wife through their child's death. And, uh, and I'm very excited to keep going forward with it because I'm looking looking to do some good things for, for a lot of people. Yeah, and you definitely are and are going to. And I want to wish Raiden very happy sixth birthday from us. And we're thinking about him and I'm thinking about him. And when will your year sober be? What's that date? September 29th, 2022. So it's coming up. I got like, you know, what, two more months, two and a half oh more months. God. I'm so excited. Okay. It well, went by fast. It went by fast. I'm excited. Well, thank you for doing this. This is incredible. Absolutely. Really, really appreciate you coming on. And I can't wait to see what the next year has to bring. So thank Absolutely, you. yeah. Will you let me know when you're going to take your year and where and I want to come? Absolutely, yeah. All okay. right, Ashley, I appreciate awesome. it. Thank you so thank much. You. I'll talk to you soon. All right, Scott, that was quite the episode. What did you think? 
Yeah. I mean, that, that is a, uh, that's a really hard story. I would say like maybe one of the biggest advertisements for EMDR that I've ever heard because <laughs> totally. I mean, so it's very interesting to hear both of your perspectives and be able to like, you know, it rare in those kind of events, do you hear it from multiple angles and, and for you both to be able to touch on something just so traumatic, like in both scenarios for both parties, I can't imagine being okay. And to be able to have you guys talk about it in the way that, you know, it's very clear that it still has a huge impact and that it, it means something, but like there's, there is a way that you guys are able to talk about it. That is just, like I said, I don't know that I have heard a more compelling case for the power of EMDR than maybe this episode. It's interesting because both of us did it accidentally. Like I didn't, the situation where I was doing it, I was actually, we were doing a test to see if EMDR would work online. And me being me, I volunteered to do it on this topic, on this event, because it wasn't that it was in within months. And I, I was like, I'm, I'll do it. Like, I'll really do it for real. And it changed my life. I was, I was terrified of my kids swimming, you know, was worried about triggering him. So I was telling the kids to like, not make a lot of noise because they're our neighbors. I was thinking about how close my bed was to the scene because my bed is backs up to literally like if you just draw a line without our fence, it literally goes feet away. And it just, it changed it for me. Like I just was fine. And I'm able, like I couldn't walk past the house. I couldn't, all these things. And I mean, it's fine. Like I'm fine. I have this proportionate amount of sadness and grief to the situation. I honor him on that day, on Valentine's Day. Every year I text Justin, check in, we check in with each other. And, you know, and it's just incredible. Like I got to share that I was in his neighbor who happened to be there was in recovery from a drug addiction and that I understood, like I could have been, is it, people say, is it odd or is it God? And, you know, I don't know what it was, but the serendipity and the privilege that I get to see him turn his life around is, you know, we're, we're forever bonded. Yeah. it definitely feels like one of those sliding door kinds of moments, like right circles intersecting where you're like, it certainly seems like it matters that it did line up in the way that it did. I feel like, you know, just to hear like the fervor in his voice, like just to hear the passion, to hear like how, how hard he's trying and how hard he has tried and all the things he had to overcome. Like I mentioned to him after we were done, but I just said, so here's all the times I would have stopped. Right. Yeah. right? I, I would have just been like, oh my I'm God. done. I'm done. He was like, I got sober right after. I'm like, let me just tell you something right now. <laughs> that is, that would not have been my first move. <laughs> no, 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 no. That would have been, why don't we pour 10 times the amount on this fire and see oh, yeah. what we can do with that? Oh yeah. Burn it to the ground, baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, it's, you know, what's interesting about it too, is that had he not been in the grips of an addiction, had he not been an addict, alcoholic, whatever you want to call it, he would have still had the same situation, but not received the help. Like in this situation, his parents who were there, I was, you know, his mom was standing behind me while I was doing CPR. She was there the whole time because she wasn't struggling with an addiction at the time. She didn't get that. She doesn't get that recovery. She doesn't get that healing. That is analogous to all the things that we, the privileges that we as people in recovery get. Everyone goes through trauma and difficult things in their life. When you're in recovery, you have this place to deal with it. You have these tools. People want to help you. The stakes are higher, right? So everybody piles in to help you. But the people who don't have that problem, they still have that pain. They still could use that EMDR. It's just that it's not obvious for them to go get it. And sometimes I think to, you know, I think to myself, thank God, you know, sounds strange, right? But thank God you had a problem so that you could, so that people pushed you to actually get help because it wouldn't have happened otherwise. Yeah, totally. I mean, even just thinking about the ways that people try to help outside, like in tragedy like this, and just how ill-equipped they are compared to people who are in this program, right? Like it's 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 night and day different. You know, they're they just kind of give platitudes and they might make you a 
you know, a casserole. And then a couple <laughs> right. months later, they're like, yeah, well, like, I'm yeah. on to the next thing. And they don't know what else to do, right? If they don't have the intensive therapy or the background or whatever it is, people say, I'm grateful to be an alcoholic, an addict. And I do, I know that's strange, but that is why, because we as the alcoholic addicts see other people going through the exact same things we go through. It's not like we have a different, we're in the same life, we're in the same human experience, but we have these tools because the stakes are really high for us. In many ways, those tools allow us to be more equipped than the people who never had a problem. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's just an unbelievable story. And I just, I hope he always knows just how amazing that journey was and all the things that sort of were in maybe that meant to be category in order to get him to the place that he is now just when you think about all the different aspects of it, just just crazy and super grateful that I'm sober and and uh, I got to be a small piece of that that story. Well, we'll end this episode just slightly different than we normally do. I think for this one, maybe I think, why don't we leave this as a moment of just kind of like maybe reflection and, and gratitude, maybe yeah. that people that you can have for the people that you have. And, and uh, we're rooting for you as always. What do you got for them, Ashley? I just want to share my gratitude for the opportunity to have this podcast and to tell you these stories. And it is a privilege and an honor to have li- people listen to these stories that we put out every week. And and I'm very grateful to each and every one of you. So thank you for listening. And thank you for being a part of this story. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.